0: For Isaac Stewart, who paints my imagination. Prologue, To Pretend Seven Years Ago Of course the Parshendi wanted to play their drums. Of course Gavilar had told them they could. And of course he hadn't thought to warn Navani. Have you seen the size of those instruments? Maratham said running her hands through her black hair. Where will we put them? And we're already at capacity after your husband invited all the foreign dignitaries. We can't- We'll set up a more exclusive feast in the upper ballroom, Navani said, maintaining a calm demeanor. And put the drums there, with the king's table. Everyone else in the kitchens was close to panicking assistant cooks running one direction or another, pots banging, anticipation sprenge shooting up from the ground like streamers. Gavilar had invited not only the high princes, but their relatives, and every high lord in the city. And he wanted a double-sized beggar's feast. And now, drums? We've already put everyone to work in the lower feast hall, Maratham cried. I don't have the staff to set up. There are twice as many soldiers as usual, loitering around the palace tonight, Navani said. We'll have them help you set up. Posting extra guards? Making a show of force? Gavilar could always be counted on to do that. For everything else, he had Navani. Could work, yes, Maratham said. Good to put the louts to work rather than having them underfoot. We have two main feasts, then. All right. Deep breaths. The short palace organizer scuttled away, narrowly avoiding an apprentice cook carrying a large bowl of steaming shellfish. Navani stepped aside to let the cook pass. The man nodded in thanks. The staff had long since stopped being nervous when she entered the kitchens, she'd made it clear to them that doing their jobs efficiently was recognition enough. Despite the underlying tension, they seemed to have things well in hand now, though there had been a scare earlier when they'd found worms in three barrels of grain. Thankfully, Bright Lord Amaram had stores for his men, and Navani had been able to pry them out of his grip. For now, with the extra cooks they'd borrowed from the monastery, They might actually be able to feed all the people Gavilar had invited. I'll have to give instructions on who is to be seated in which feast room, she thought, slipping out of the kitchens and into the palace gardens, and leave some extra space in both. Who knows who else might show up with an invitation? She hiked up through the gardens toward the side doors of the palace. She'd be less in the way and wouldn't have to dodge servants if she took this path. As she walked, she scanned to make certain all the lanterns were in place. Though the sun hadn't yet set, she wanted the Kolinar Palace to shine brightly tonight. Wait, was that A Sudan? Her daughter-in-law? Elokar's wife? Standing near the fountains? She was supposed to be greeting guests inside. The slender woman wore her long hair in a bun, lit by a gemstone of each shade. All those colors were gaudy together. Navani preferred a few simple stones, themed to one color. But it did make Aesudan stand out, as she chatted with two elderly ardents. Storms bright and brash. That was Roucher Chris, the artist and master artifabrian. When had he arrived? Who had invited him? He was holding a small box with a flower painted on it. Could that be one of his new fabrials? Navani felt drawn toward the group, all other thoughts fleeing her mind. How had he made the heating fabriel, making the temperature vary? She'd seen drawings, but to talk to the master artist himself. Aesudan saw Navani and smiled brightly. The joy seemed genuine, which was unusual, at least when directed at Navani. She tried not to take Aesudan's general sourness toward her as a personal affront. It was the prerogative of every woman to feel threatened by her mother-in-law, particularly when the girl was so obviously lacking in talents. Navani smiled at her in turn, trying to enter the conversation and get a better look at that box. Aesudan, however, took Navani by the arm. Mother, I had completely forgotten about our appointment. I'm so fickle sometimes. Terribly sorry, Ardent Chris, but I must make a hasty exit. Aesudan tugged Navani forcefully back through the gardens toward the kitchens. Thank, Kelleck, you showed up, mother. That man is the most dreadful bore. Bore. Navani said, twisting to gaze over her shoulder. He was talking about gemstones and other gemstones and spren and boxes of spren and storms. You'd think he would understand. I have important people to meet. The wives of high princes, the best generals in the land, all come to gawk at the wild parchment. Then I get stuck in the gardens talking to Ardents? Your son abandoned me there, I'll have you know, when I find that man. Navani extricated herself from Aesudan's grip. Someone should entertain those ardents. Why are they here? Don't ask me, Aesudan said. Gavilar wanted them for something, but he made Elokar entertain them. Poor manners, that is, honestly. Gavilar had invited one of the world's most prominent artifabrians to visit Kolinar and he hadn't bothered to tell Navani? Emotion stirred deep inside her, a fury she kept carefully penned and locked away. That man, that storming man, how, how could he? Anger spren like boiling blood began to well up in a small pool at her feet. Calm, Navani, the rational side of her mind said. Maybe he intends to introduce the ardent to you as a gift. She banished the anger with effort. Brightness, a voice called from the kitchens. Brightness, Nirvani, oh please, we have a problem. Hey, Sudan, Nirvani said, her eyes still on the ardent, who was now slowly walking toward the monastery. Could you help the kitchens with whatever they need? I'd like to- but Esudan was already hurrying off toward another group in the gardens, one attended by several powerful high lord generals. Navani took a deep breath and shoved down another stab of frustration. Esudan claimed to care about propriety and manners, but she'd insert herself into a conversation between men without bringing her husband along as an excuse. Brightness, the cook called again, waving to her. Navani took one last look at the ardent, then set her jaw and hurried to the kitchens, careful not to catch her skirt on the ornamental shale bark. What now? Wine, the cook said. We're out of both the Clavendar and the ruby bench. How? she said. We have reserves. She shared a glance with the cook, and the answer was evident. Dalinar had found their wine store again. He'd grown quite ingenious at secretly draining the barrels for himself and his friends. She wished he'd dedicate half as much attention to the kingdom's needs. I have a private store, Navani said, pulling her notebook from her pocket. She gripped it in her safe hand through her sleeve as she scribbled a note. I keep it in the monastery with Sister Tallina. Show her this, and she'll give you access. Thank you, Brightness the cook said taking the note before the man was out the door navani spotted the house steward a white bearded man with too many rings on his fingers hovering in the stairwell to the palace proper he was fidgeting with the rings on his left hand bother what is it she asked striding over high lord rhine hatham has arrived and is asking about his audience with the king You remember, his majesty promised to talk with Rhine tonight about, about the border dispute and the misdrawn maps, yes, Navani said, sighing. And where is my husband? Unclear, brightness, the steward said. He was last seen with Bright Lord Amaram and some of those uncommon figures. That was the term the palace staff used for Gavilar's new friends the ones who seemed to arrive without warning or announcement, and who rarely gave their names. Navani ground her teeth, thinking through the places Gavilar might have gone. He would be angry if she interrupted him. Well, good. He should be seeing to his guests, rather than assuming she'd handle everything and everyone. Unfortunately, at the moment, she- Well, she would have to handle everything and everyone. She let the anxious steward lead her up to the grand entryway, where guests were being entertained with music, drink, and poetry while the feast was prepared. Others were escorted by master servants to view the Parshendi, the knights' true novelty. It wasn't every day the King of Alethkar signed a treaty with a group of mysterious Parshmen who could talk. She extended her apologies to High Lord Rhine for Gavilar's absence, offering to review the maps herself. After that, she was stopped by a line of impatient men and women brought to the palace by the promise of an audience with the king. Navani assured the light eyes their concerns were being heard. She promised to look into injustices. She soothed the crumpled feelings of those who thought a personal invitation from the king meant they'd actually get to see him. A rare privilege these days, unless you were one of the uncommon figures. Guests were still showing up, of course. Ones who weren't on the updated list an annoyed Gavilar had provided for her earlier that day. Vev's golden keys! Navani forcibly painted on an amicable face for the guests. She smiled, she laughed, she waved. Using the reminders and lists she kept in her notebook, she asked after families, new births, and favorite axe hounds. She inquired about trade situations, took notes on which light eyes seemed to be avoiding others. In short, she acted like a queen. It was emotionally taxing work, but it was her duty perhaps some day she'd be able to spend her days tinkering with fabrials and pretending she was a scholar today she'd do her job though a part of her felt like an impostor however prestigious her ancient lineage might be her anxiety whispered that she was really just a backwater country girl wearing someone else's clothing those insecurities had grown stronger lately calm calm there was no room for that sort of thinking. She rounded the room, pleased to note that Esudan had found Elokar, and was chatting with him for once, rather than other men. Elokar did look happy presiding over the prefeast in his father's absence. Adolin and Renarin were there in stiff uniforms, the former delighting a small group of young women, the latter appearing gangly and awkward as he stood by his brother and there was Dalinar, standing tall somehow taller than any man in the room he wasn't drunk yet and people orbited him like they might a fire on a cold night needing to be close but fearing the true heat of his presence those haunted eyes of his simmering with passion storms alight She excused herself and made a brief exit up the steps to where she wouldn't feel so warm. It was a bad idea to leave. They were lacking a king, and questions were bound to arise if the queen vanished too. Yet surely everyone could get on without her for a short time. Besides, up here she could check one of Gavilar's hiding places. She wound her way through the dungeon-like hallways, passing Parshendi carrying drums nearby, speaking a language she did not understand. Why couldn't this place have a little more natural light up here? A few more windows? She'd brought the matter up with Gavilar, but he liked it this way. It gave him more places to hide. There, she thought, stopping at an intersection. Voices. Being able to bring them back and forth from Bray's doesn't mean anything, one said. It's too close to be a relevant distance. It was impossible only a few short years ago, said a deep, powerful voice. Gavilar, this is proof. The connection is not severed, and the box allows for travel. Not yet as far as you'd like, but we must start the journey somewhere. Navani peered around the corner. She could see a door at the end of the short hallway ahead, cracked open, letting the voices leak out. Yes, Gavilar was having a meeting right where she'd expected, in her study. It was a cozy little room with a nice window, tucked away in the corner of the second floor, a place she rarely had time to visit, but where people were unlikely to search for Gavilar. She inched up to peek in through the cracked door. Gavilar Colin had a presence big enough to fill a room all by himself. He wore a beard, but instead of being unfashionable on him, it was classic, like a painting come to life, a representation of old Alethkar. Some had thought he might start a trend, but few were able to pull off the look. Beyond that, there was an air of distortion around Gavilar. Nothing supernatural or nonsensical. It was just that, well, you accepted that Gavilar could do whatever he wanted, in defiance of any tradition or logic. For him, it would work out. It always did. The king was speaking with two men that Navani vaguely recognized, a tall Makabaki man with a birthmark on his cheek, and a shorter Vorin man with a round face and a small nose. They'd been called ambassadors from the West, but no kingdom had been given for their home. The Makabaki one leaned against the bookcase, his arms folded, his face completely expressionless. The Vorin man wrung his hands, reminding Navani of the palace steward, though this man seemed much younger. Somewhere in his twenties? maybe his thirties? No, he could be older. On the table between Gavilar and the men lay a group of spheres and gemstones. Nivani's breath caught as she saw them. They were arrayed in a variety of colors and brightness, but several seemed strangely off. They glowed with an inverse of light, as if they were little pits of violet darkness, sucking in the color around them. She'd never seen anything like them before, but gemstones with spren trapped inside could have all kinds of odd appearances and effects. Those, they must be meant for Fabriels. What was Gavilar doing with spheres, strange light, and distinguished art of Fabrians, and why wouldn't he talk to her about- Gavilar suddenly stood up straight and glanced toward the doorway, though Navani hadn't made any sound. Their eyes met, so she pushed open the doors if she had been on her way in. She wasn't spying. She was queen of this palace. She could go where she wished, particularly her own study. Husband, she said, there are guests missing you at the gathering. You seem to have lost track of time. Gentlemen, Gavilar said to the two ambassadors, I will need to excuse myself. The nervous Vorin man ran his hand through his wispy hair. I want to know more of the project, Gavilar. Plus, you need to know that another of us is here tonight. I spotted her handiwork earlier. I have a meeting shortly with Meridas and the others, Gavilar said. They should have more information for me. We can speak again after that. No the Makabaki man said, his voice sharp. I doubt we shall. There's more here, Nail, the Vorin man said, though he followed as his friend left. This is important. I want out. This is the only way. What was that about? Navani asked as Gavilar closed the door. Those are no ambassadors. Who are they, really? Gavilar did not answer. With deliberate motions, he began plucking the spheres off the table and placing them into a pouch. Navani darted forward and snatched one. What are these? How did you get spheres that glow like this? Does this have to do with the Artifabrians you've invited here? She looked to him, waiting for some kind of answer, some explanation. Instead, he held out his hand for her sphere. This does not concern you, Navani. Return to the feast. She closed her hand around the sphere. So I can continue to cover for you? Did you promise High Lord Rhine you'd mediate his dispute tonight? Of all times? Do you know how many people are expecting you? And did you say you have another meeting to go to now before the feast begins? Are you simply going to ignore our guests? Do you know, he said softly, how tired I grow of your constant questions, woman. Perhaps try answering one or two then. It'd be a novel experience, treating your wife like a human being, rather than like a machine built to count the days of the week for you. He wagged his hand, demanding the sphere. Instinctively, she gripped it tighter. Why? Why do you continue to shut me out? Please, just tell me. I deal in secrets you could not handle, Navani. If you knew the scope of what I've begun. She frowned. The scope of what? He'd already conquered Alethkar. He'd united the High Princes. Was this about how he had turned his eyes toward the unclaimed hills? Surely settling a patch of wild lands, populated by nothing more than the odd tribe of parshmen? was nothing compared to what he'd already accomplished. He took her hand, forced apart her fingers, and removed the sphere. She didn't fight him. He would not react well. He had never used his strength against her. Not in that way. But there had been words, comments, threats. He took the strange transfixing sphere and stashed it in the pouch with the others. He pulled the pouch tight with a taut snap of finality, then tucked it into his pocket. You're punishing me, aren't you? Navani demanded. You know my love of Fabrials. You taunt me specifically because you know it will hurt. Perhaps, Gavilar said. You will learn to consider before you speak, Navani. Perhaps you will learn the dangerous price of rumors. This again, she thought. Nothing happened, Gavilar. Do you think I care, Gavilar said. Do you think the court cares? To them, lies are as good as facts. That was true, she realized. Gavilar didn't care if she'd been unfaithful to him, and she hadn't. But the things she'd said had started rumors, difficult to smother. All Gavilar cared about was his legacy. He wanted to be known as a great king, a great leader. That drive had always pushed him, but it was growing into something else lately. He kept asking, would he be remembered as Alethkar's greatest king? Could he compete with his ancestors, men such as the Sunmaker? If a king's court thought he couldn't control his own wife, wouldn't that stain his legacy? What good was a kingdom if Gavilar knew that his wife secretly loved his brother? In this, Navani represented a chip in the marble of his all-important legacy. Speak to your daughter, Gavilar said, turning toward the door. I believe I have managed to soothe Amaram's pride. He might take her back, and her time is running out. Few other suitors will consider her. I'll likely need to pay half the kingdom to get rid of the girl if she denies Meridas again. Navani sniffed. You speak to her. If what you want is so important. Maybe you could do it yourself for once. Besides, I don't care for Amaram. Yasna can do better. He froze, then looked back and spoke in a low, quiet voice. Yasna will marry Amaram. As I have instructed her, she will put aside this fancy of becoming famous by denying the Church. Her arrogance stains the reputation of the entire family. Navani stepped forward and let her voice grow as cold as his. You realize that girl still loves you, Gavilar. They all do. Alokar, Dalinar, the boys. They worship you. Are you sure you want to reveal to them what you truly are? They are your legacy. Treat them with care. They will define how you are remembered. Greatness will define me, Navani. No mediocre effort by someone like Dalinar or my son could undermine that. And I personally doubt Elokar could rise to even mediocre. And what about me, she said. I could write your history, your life, whatever you think you've done whatever you think you've accomplished, that's ephemeral, Gavilar. Words on the page define men to future generations. You spurn me, but I have a grip on what you cherish most. Push me too far, and I will start squeezing. He didn't respond with shouts or rage, but the cold void in his eyes could have consumed kingdoms, and left only blackness. He raised his hand to her chin and gently cupped it, a mockery of a once passionate gesture. It was more painful than a slap. You know why I don't involve you, Navani, he said softly. Do you think you can take the truth? Try for once. It would be refreshing. You aren't worthy, Navani. You claim to be a scholar, but where are your discoveries? You study light, but you are its opposite, a thing that destroys light. You spend your time wallowing in the muck of the kitchens and obsessing about whether or not some insignificant light-eyes recognizes the right lines on a map. These are not the actions of greatness. You are no scholar. You merely like being near them. You are no artifabrian. You are merely a woman who likes trinkets. You have no fame, accomplishment, or capacity of your own. Everything distinctive about you came from someone else. You have no power. You merely like to marry men who have it. How dare you deny it, Navani, he snapped. Deny that you loved one brother but married the other. You pretended to adore a man you detested, all because you knew he would be king. She recoiled from him, pulling out of his grip and turning her head to the side. She closed her eyes and felt tears on her cheeks. It was more complicated than he implied she had loved both of them, and Dalinar's intensity had frightened her, so Gavilar had seemed the safer choice. But there was a truth to Gavilar's accusation. She could lie to herself and say she'd seriously considered Dalinar, but they'd all known she'd eventually choose Gavilar, and she had. He was the more influential of the two. You went, where the money and power would be greatest, Gavilar said. Like any common whore. Write whatever you want about me. Say it, shout it, proclaim it. I will outlive your accusations, and my legacy will persist. I have discovered the entrance to the realm of gods and legends, and once I join them, my kingdom will never end. I, will never end. He left then, closing the door behind him with a quiet click. Even in an argument, he controlled the situation. Trembling, Navani fumbled her way to a seat by the desk, which boiled over with anger spren, and shame spren, which fluttered around her like white and red petals. Fury made her shake, fury at him, at herself for not fighting back, at the world, because she knew what he said was at least partially true. No, don't let his lies become your truth. Fight it. Teeth gritted. She opened her eyes and began rummaging in her desk for some oil paint and paper. She began painting, taking care with each calligraphic line. Pride, as if proof to him, compelled her to be meticulous and perfect. The act usually soothed her, the way that neat orderly lines became words, the way that paint and paper transformed into meaning. In the end, she had one of the finest glyph words she'd ever created. It read simply, death, gift, death. She'd drawn each glyph, in the shapes of Gavilar's tower or sword heraldry. The prayer burned eagerly in the lamp flame, flaring bright. And as it did, her catharsis turned to shame. What was she doing? Praying for her husband's death? The shame spren returned in a burst. How had it come to this? Their arguments grew worse and worse. She knew he was not this man the one he showed her lately. He wasn't like this when he spoke to Dalinar, or to sadius or even, usually, to Yasna. Gavilar was better than this. She suspected he knew it, too. Tomorrow she would receive flowers. No apology to accompany them, but a gift, usually a bracelet. Yes, he knew he should be something more. But somehow She brought out the monster in him, and he somehow brought out the weakness in her. She slammed her safe hand palm against the table, rubbing her forehead with her other hand. Storms. It seemed not so long ago that they'd sat conspiring together about the kingdom they would forge. Now they barely spoke without reaching for their sharpest knives, stabbing them right into the most painful spots, with an accuracy gained only through long-time familiarity. She composed herself with effort, redoing her makeup, touching up her hair. She might be the things he said, but he was no more than a backwater thug with too much luck and a knack for fooling good men into following him. If a man like that could pretend to be a king, she could pretend to be a queen. At any rate, they had a kingdom. At least one of them should try to run it. Navani didn't hear of the assassination until it had been accomplished. At the feast, they'd been the model of perfect royalty, cordial to one another, leading their respective meals. Then Gavilar had left, fleeing as soon as he could find an excuse. At least he'd waited until the dining was finished. Navani had gone down to bid farewell to the guests. She'd implied that Gavilar wasn't deliberately snubbing anyone. He was merely exhausted from his extensive touring. Yes, she was certain he'd be holding audience soon. They'd love to visit once the next storm passed. On and on she went, until each smile made her face feel as if it would crack. She was relieved when a messenger girl came running for her. She stepped away from the departing guests, expecting to hear that an expensive vase had shattered or that Dalinar was snoring at his table. Instead, the messenger girl brought Navani over to the palace steward, his face a mask of grief. Eyes reddened, hands shaking, the aged man reached out for her and took her arm. As if for stability. Tears ran down his face, getting caught in his wispy beard. Seeing his emotion, she realized she rarely thought of the man by his name, rarely thought of him as a person. She'd often treated him like a fixture of the palace, much as one might the statues out front, much as Gavilar treated her. Gera, she said, taking his hand, embarrassed. What happened? Are you well? Have we been working you too hard without the king? The elderly man choked out. Oh, Brightness, they've taken our king. Those parshmen, those barbarians, those, those monsters. Her immediate suspicion was that Gavilar had found some way to escape the palace, and everyone thought he'd been kidnapped. That man, she thought, imagining him out in the city with his uncommon visitors, discussing secrets in a dark room. Gere held to her tighter. Brightness, they've killed him. King Gavilar is dead. Impossible, she said. He's the most powerful man in the land, perhaps the world, surrounded by shard bearers. You are mistaken, Gere. He's, He's as enduring as the storms but of course, that wasn't true. It was merely what he wished people to think. I will never end. When he said things like that, it was hard to disbelieve him. She had to see the body before the truth started to seep in at last, chilling her like a winter rain. Gavilar, broken and bloody, lay on a table in the larder, with guards forcibly turning aside the frightened house staff when they asked for explanations. Navani stood over him. Even with the blood in his beard, the shattered shard plate, his lack of breath, and the gaping wounds in his flesh, even then she wondered if it was a trick. What lay before her was an impossibility. Gavilar Colin couldn't simply die like other men. She had them show her the fallen balcony, where Gavilar had been found lifeless after dropping from above. Yasna had witnessed it, they said. The normally unflappable girl sat in the corner, her fisted safe hand to her mouth as she cried. Only then did the shock spren begin to appear around Navani, like triangles of breaking light. Only then did she believe. Gavilar Colin was dead. Sadius pulled Navani aside and, with genuine sorrow, explained his role in the events. She listened in a numb sense of disconnect. She had been so busy, she hadn't realized that most of the Parshendi had left the palace in secret, fleeing into the darkness moments before their minion attacked. Their leaders had stayed behind to cover up the withdrawal. In a trance, Navani walked back to the larder and the cold husk of Gavilar Colin, his discarded shell. From the looks of the attending servants and surgeons, they anticipated grief from her, wailing, perhaps. Certainly there were painspren appearing in droves in the room, and even a few rare anguish spren, like teeth growing from the walls. She felt something akin to those emotions. Sorrow? No, not exactly. Regret. If he truly was dead, then that was it. Their last real conversation had been another argument. There was no going back. Always before, she'd been able to tell herself that they'd reconcile, that they'd hunt through the thorns and find a path to return to what they'd been. If not loving, then at least aligned. Now that would never be. It was over. He was dead. She was a widow. And. Storms. She'd prayed for this. That knowledge stabbed her straight through. She had to hope the Almighty hadn't listened to her foolish pleas written in a moment of fury. Although a part of her had grown to hate Gavilar, she didn't truly want him dead. Did she? No. No, this was not how it should have ended. And so she felt another emotion pity. Lying there, blood pooling on the tabletop around him, Gavilar Colin's corpse seemed the ultimate insult to his grand plans. He thought he was eternal, did he? He thought to reach for some grand vision too important to share with her? Well, the father of storms and the mother of the world ignored the desires of men, no matter how grand. What she didn't feel was grief. His death was meaningful, but it didn't mean anything to her, other than perhaps a way for her children to never have to learn what he'd become. I will be the better person, Gavilar, she thought, closing his eyes for what you once were. I'll let the world pretend. I'll give you your legacy. Then she paused. His shard plate, well, the plate he was wearing, had broken near the waist. She reached her fingers into his pocket and brushed hog's hide leather. She eased out the pouch of spheres he'd been showing off earlier, but found it empty. Storms. Where had he put them? Someone in the room coughed, and she became suddenly cognizant of how it looked for her to be rifling through his pockets. Navani took the spheres from her hair, put them into the pouch, then folded it into his hand before resting her forehead on his broken chest. That would appear as if she were returning gifts to him, symbolizing her light becoming his as he died. Then, with his blood on her face, she stood up and made a show of composing herself. Over the next hours, organizing the chaos of a city turned upside down, she worried she'd get a reputation for callousness. Instead, people seemed to find her sturdiness comforting. The king was gone, but the kingdom lived on. Gavilar had left this life as he'd lived it with grand drama that afterward required Navani to pick up the pieces.